back with you uh, today. I'm honored. It's been quite a, a couple years, I think, or so since I've been back. I'm glad we're going to be continuing with the series of um, uh, Snapshots in Luke. And uh, Well, actually, we're starting the series Snapshots in Luke because I believe uh, Mark, he was covering uh, Snapshots in the Gospels, and then uh, it just finished Matthew. And so uh, uh, Mark, a couple weeks ago when he asked me, he said, hey, listen, can you teach more uh, for me? Uh, on the 12th, I said, yes, I can, and put it down. And he, I said, what do you want me to teach on? He said, just something in Luke. We're going to be covering uh, snapshots in Luke. And I said, oh, okay, well, are there any particular passages? You know, if you're just going to be starting, do you want me to keep some passages early on or what have you? And he said, no, 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 do whatever you feel like to do. So what we, I'm going to look at today or what we're going to look at today are actually just some uh, portions in Luke that in maybe within the last year or so that I was looking uh, at in my uh, devotional time and all. So just kind of wanted to share some of those with you, and we'll look at those, uh, those passages together. So uh, as you see, now I'm using the, the, uh, the, the work, the uh, PowerPoint slides and all. Uh, Brent sent these to me and uh, that Mark has been using. And, and I think it's really cool because you see this camera here, and I think that's just really appropriate uh, as he's talking about these snapshots. You know, we all know what a camera does. Where the camera takes, fixates on an image and then takes that image with the right lighting and then goes through a series of mirrors and then puts it onto the film. And in the case of a, a camera that uses film, like we have in this picture right here, it causes a chemical reaction, and therefore the, the image that it focused on is preserved, and it gives clarity to the image, and it reproduces and gives you uh, a, a chance to be able to see the image. And so that's what the, the camera has been doing. But do you know this, this camera right here, it may not be this exact model right here, but it's such a complicated uh, mechanism to be able to do that. I mean, when you think about that, what all happens and how much is involved in just simply taking a picture of something, especially, like I said, now the digital, obviously, they're different because it causes a, uh, a, a digital um, uh, uh, process in that sense to be able to preserve the image. But just this, this mechanism right here, this machine to be able to preserve these images is very complicated. Can you imagine that many parts go into that machine? Yeah, that's a camera. That is a Pentax camera that has been, as they said, the image, uh, the byline on the image was that it was exploded. And so they've taken, somebody took all of the individual parts of that camera apart to be able, and all of that works together to be able to take an image, process it, and then preserve it so that then we can enjoy it. And you know what? I thought to myself, that is so appropriate what Mark does for you guys every week. This, this incredibly uh, uh, gifted man takes the scriptures, focuses on an image through a very complicated process, be able, helps us to be able to see the image and bring understanding and then preserve it. And I thought, that is so appropriate. Mine's not quite that complicated, my process. This would probably be a little presentation of what we can expect today. But, I, but you know what? But we're still going to get an image and we're still going to be preserved. But the process will probably not be quite as involved uh, as what maybe you are accustomed to week in and week out. I remember uh, I took, I actually uh, in uh, seminary took uh, six hours of Hebrew, 12 hours of Greek. And I remember that whenever we finished New Testament Greek, that our Greek professor stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, I want to congratulate you on completing a very important part 
of your theological education. But let me just encourage you by this and let you know that now you know just enough Greek to be dangerous. And he is right. He said, in fact, if you see things in the Greek that nobody has ever seen before, chances are it's not there. And I've always said that. But what's so incredible about Mark's teaching is the fact that uh, as I've talked with other, actually, Greek scholars and some of my professors in Greek, they said, you know, the, 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 the incredible thing about the languages, the biblical languages, is that you have to use it every day to be able to retain it. And, and they said, you know, the, the, the gifting is that that's, it goes into what we do. So, therefore, we're in the original languages, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, every day in, in, in what we do. It's our job. But when you're not, it is incredibly difficult to stay, especially keep up with your vocabulary and everything else. So that's why as, uh, every, uh, every week I'm just so amazed at what, uh, what Mark brings out. Not only the theological perspectives and all, but then obviously the use of, uh, of the languages. But I want us to look at three things today. We're going to look at two passages. And basically these are going to be the themes here. First of all, we will focus on the lens. We'll focus a lens on the kindness of God. Now, it may be simplistic and all, but we're going to look at God's word and, and what it has about the theme of the kindness of God. Secondly, the strength of God. We're going to be looking at the, the, what the word of God tells us about the strength of God. And then finally, the loyalty of God. And that's, uh, that last one's kind of interesting about God's loyalty to us. We talk about our loyalty to the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the great Shema. Our loyalty to God. But what about God's loyalty uh, to us and his commitment to us? So we start with the kindness of God. Now, you will talk with people that will have different perspectives on, on the kindness and the kindness of God versus his justice and his mercy and so forth. And people can have a very different perspective of the Lord. They might focus, for instance, on the, 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 the justice of God and that he is, he, he is a holy God and he is to be respected and revered and followed and, and, and he brings judgment. And we know that scripture clearly teaches that the Lord brings judgment, especially in the Old Testament, but then also uh, Jesus talked about when the, the Lord will discipline us or involved in our lives and hold us accountable. Obviously, God throughout the scripture, Old Testament through the New Testament, is, is serious about sin and deals with sin and judges sin. We know that. So there's no confusion about that. Uh, but then when we talk about sometimes people can take the other extreme is that, that basically God is just nothing more than a grandfatherly figure and whatever goes, his whole desire, his whole aim is to spoil his children and there's never any consequences for anything that we do when we go astray or we go off the rails or anything like that. So sometimes the too much emphasis on the, the goodness, the, kind, the loving, the, or, or the, the love of God can also lead us to an skewed perspective of who God is. So either extreme... It is is problematic. 
Now, if you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, you know he was in the First Awakening. He was one of our scholars up in uh, um, up in Massachusetts and uh, a congregational preacher, uh, brilliant individual. Also, was a, for for a very short time the president of what was uh, would become Princeton uh, University. Now, in his sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." Uh, he uh, he had a very uh, interesting view of God. In fact, how would you like this sermon to start out? And of course, these, this is always effective when you have a very dramatic voice. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. That's a great way to start out a sermon, right? Yeah. And he also did it, by the way, with just kind of reading it. And the people, and they said that the people literally were holding on to the backs of the pews. Some, he abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely. More than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hands that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. And now we'll receive the offering. (laughs) It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since, I think you just like to say that, but why you, since you have not gone to hell, since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eye by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Wow. Now, is that true? Yeah, it is. The only reason that we even take our next breath every day is the grace of God, the mercy of God. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. Yes, it is his mercy. It is his grace that preserves us, that keeps us, that sustains us. Yeah, he's right. He's pretty to the point in saying that. But if that's the only perspective that you have of God, you're thinking, oh, my Lord, I am just one mistake away from him just making me into a little greasy spot. If that's the perspective that you had. But lo and behold, What did I say we were going to be talking about? The kindness of God. 
is that kind of a God that we just, if we just stopped right here, is that kind of a God? Now, you might say, yeah, well, he's saying that he's sustaining you. He's keeping you, you know, from dropping in the fire like a, like a spider or whatever. Yeah, well, that's, I get, would that be kind or is he just doing it because he has to or whatever? But if you just stop right there, do you see maybe a heart towards kindness that does that or just, just simply merciful but not necessarily kindness? Well, we know about God's predestination. We do know. When somebody asked me and they said, well, Scott, do you believe in predestination or the sovereignty of God or do you believe in the free will of man? And my answer is yes, I do. I believe in both because Scripture teaches both. Does that mean I understand how they work together? No, it doesn't. I don't understand. There's a lot that I don't understand that I accept when the scripture, I know God understands it completely. God is perfectly just. God is not, he, he, you know, there were some theologians not too long ago that talked about progressive revelation. In other words, that God is just so far ahead of us, but he's kind of learning on the fly like with us. And that's just ridiculous. I mean, God operates in eternity. We are in time. It's linear for us. He sees everything at one time because he's omnipresent, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent. And, uh, and, and, um, and so he sees everything at one time. But we do have scriptures that indicates about God's work beforehand, him choosing, making choices. Deuteronomy 7, 6, you may not be able to say, oh, you can see it, I guess, pretty good there, okay? For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now, we know that he was talking to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. So we see God's sovereignty there and God's choosing. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, Look at the progress there. He predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. All of that is in the choosing and the decision of God, even beforehand. We see Romans 9, 14 through 16 tells us, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, because God does this choosing, is he sometimes unjust or unfair uh, because he, he operates that way? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, who does he have mercy on? If you and I were to think about who would be the most likely people that we would have a tendency to be merciful towards. Nice people, maybe? Yeah, maybe if they're nice, you know, but I mean, we would probably have our limits, you know, especially if we're trying to have mercy or love out of the flesh. But what about really, really bad people? What about people who are probably never going to say thank you? Would you have mercy on those kind of people? 
would, would we? I mean, that would really take some mustering up on our part, right, to be able to show mercy towards those kind of people. And when we looked at God right here, we say, okay, you know what? By so far what we see, there, there has to be a limit to God's mercy. And especially if he's talking about the elect, maybe he only shows mercy towards those he's already predestined. Maybe he only shows mercy to those that he's already selected beforehand or he's already chosen. In John 6, Jesus even said that God's uh, choice, God's decision is involved in the process. He says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We understand, too, that the only way that we can become Christians, the only way that we can be saved is that the Holy Spirit first has to work on our hearts. There's nobody that comes to God on their own just through intellectual assent, for instance. Now, if you are an intellect, there may be a lot of intellectual uh, searching and in and, and the, and the process to eventually come to Christ. But any of us who come to Christ must first be drawn by the Holy Spirit and the eyes of our hearts be open to this gift of salvation. We don't ever come to God on our own terms. Uh, yeah, it kind of makes sense. I think I'll just go ahead and choose God. Well, it may seem like that, but that's not what's been involved in the process. It's been, it's been God and the Holy Spirit working beforehand. So along those lines, one of the criticisms of God, obviously, is that, uh, well, you know, I'll say if you have this God, and then how do you reconcile this loving God, if indeed it is a loving God or a patient God or a kind God, with what we see in the world, the evil? Yesterday, in this very place, we had the funeral for the Collins family, five family members, five caskets in the service, beyond comprehension, how one family can go to sleep one night with three sons and wake up the next day and all three sons are died, have died, murdered. It's terrible, terrible evil. Well, see, if we, we go too far on the extreme of this this, this harsh God, this judgmental God, this, this disciplining God, this God that just out of his mercy might every once in a while give some a break but not others, well, then you may say, well, then that kind of stands to reason why that happens. But then guess what? It goes to the heart of what his goodness and his kindness and his mercy. Why does God allow pain and suffering? Well, one option is he cares but just isn't powerful enough to do anything about it. Or he's powerful, but just doesn't care enough to do anything about it. And so you have this quandary. Now, we're not going to be talking about the problem of evil and suffering today. But there is a really good book that I would recommend uh, that does, in chapter 8, does discuss it. And I would highly recommend it to you and uh, to pick up your copy. And it does talk about the problem of evil. But we're not going to focus on that today uh, because when you consider the whole the fact of God's sovereignty and man's free will and, and the fall of this world and all of this thing, uh, there is reason to believe that, yes, there is a loving, all-powerful God, but, yes, there is the presence of evil, and there's a logical, rational reason for that reality in our world. But let's talk about the kindness of God. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. 
And if you do, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So what he's talking about here, Jesus is saying that, listen, when we do those things out of just human motives, he said there's no difference between us and those that do not have Christ dwelling within them, does not have the resource of drawing on God's uh, power to be able to love and to do the extraordinary things. This is just ordinary stuff if this is what we do. If you only love those who love you, then there's nothing that really supernatural that goes into that. If you only love those sinners who, uh, or only do good to those things that, that you know that they're going to do good to you, well, he said, you know, somebody who's lost can do that. So there's no, there's, you don't see the evidence or the power of God within you to be able to do those things. So this is talking about, and it's assuming that there has to be a reliance on the supernatural work of God in your life and in our lives. So when we talk about the kindness of God, for us to be able to show that type of kindness to be like God in that sense, to be able to show that, then we also must have a supernatural power and ability and, and, and the force to be able to do that like God. And when Jesus said that when he was going back and he said, listen, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. In John, when he said, and I will send the helper and he will come be with you, he will be with you and he will be what? In you. That's the difference. Be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll not carry out the what? The deeds of the flesh, the scripture says. So it's assuming this supernatural power, this supernatural presence. So if you love those who love you, then you're not doing anything significant. But love your enemies. Oh, my. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Being merciful, even as your be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Again, we're talking about the kindness of God. But let's start there at the at the top there. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Again, that's going to take the power of God within you. He's saying to be able to give openly, not expecting anything in return. Saying, so in other words, don't expect to be paid back. And, and, and the context might lend itself towards that. But again, in the Greek, and this is as far as we're going to go in the Greek here, but we have miden apalpinsotes, which means nothing, miden, nothing expecting in return. And when we look at that context of that scripture, it might say, well, that would make sense because he's talking about loving and doing good and lending. So lend without expecting anything in return. Well, first of all, I don't think that that is a scripture we should use that prohibits, for instance, a, a Christian or, a, or a, a business person or maybe a, a Christian who is a banker and you lend. And not only do you lend, but you lend with interest. In other words, we go here and say, well, Jesus said that we shouldn't expect any payment in return. I don't think we're taking that out of context of what he was saying. He's talking about the heart attitude by which you love, that you do good, and that you give. 
In other words, don't become, uh, uh, don't become worried and concerned and overwhelmed by, I hope that I get paid back. I hope I get this back. Because, see, this word is from the Greek verb, alipiso, which means despair of. And you know, say, and what's interesting is that this word expecting in return, that definition is never used in any other context for this verb. The verb in every other context, in most contexts, means don't despair. And I think what's significant about that is if you go back and you look, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Those are clustered together. And then the idea is, and don't despair. Don't live your life in despair. Why? Because you have a God that knows your needs. And he's the one that provides. He's your provider. He's your protector. And in this relationship that we have with God, it's not just limited to don't get worried about not getting paid back. He's also saying that when you love your enemies, don't despair. And when you do good, don't despair. And when you lend, don't despair. In other words, don't be concerned about whether or not you will get credit for or you will be the recipient of that, uh, that reciprocity in that coming back to you. Because you're in submission to the Lord. That we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk in the power of God. But love your enemies. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Why? Because look at God, the, great, the, the, the kindness of God. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, interestingly enough, in the Greek, we won't go there, but in the Greek, it only has one definite article, not two. So in other words, it would probably read more like uh, he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. In other words, the two can go hand in hand. Yeah, somebody who's ungrateful, guess what? They're probably going to be kind of on the evil side as well. But look at our God. This one that Jonathan Edwards said, listen, he just dangles us like a spider over the fire and the pits of hell. And yet Jesus, by the way, is telling us that he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Why did he do that? He doesn't have to. In fact, God can look at the ungrateful and the evil and say, you deserve nothing from me. You deserve what you get. In fact, you deserve nothing but punishment from me. And yet Jesus is saying that the heart of God, he even looks at those who are evil and ungrateful and still chooses by an act of his will to be kind to them. It's amazing. But look at what David did. He lived out this reality even in the Old Testament. David, this is with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was the, the, the son of Jonathan who was crippled in his feet, it said. And in that day and time when a new king came on the throne, he usually got rid of every possible person that could compete for the throne after that, which means literally wiping out the previous king's family, servants, everybody. But David, was the scripture tells us about what the character of David was, he had his problems, he made his mistakes, but what is it? He was a man after God's own heart. He found it within his heart. He said, listen, I want to show compassion on because 
of Jonathan. And David said to him, to Mephibosheth, when he finally summoned him to, uh, to the king's presence, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table. We see the kindness of this king who had all the resources. He didn't need to show kindness. He could just simply show anger or resolve and eliminate any possible competition that he would have to deal with later on. But he says, I want to show you kindness. You're welcome at my table. There was nothing Mephibosheth had to offer the king. It was only one way. And again, an image of how God is with us. When we talk about the kindness of God, we think about Luke 15. And uh, in, that, in that passage right there, Luke 15, we have the story of the lost sheep where the man had 100 sheep and he was searching for the one. When he was losing just one, he, the shepherd went and, and found the lost sheep. We had the, uh, the lady that, or the woman that had the widow that had uh, the 10 coins and lost one. And she's on a mission to find just that one coin. She's got nine coins there. They're safe and sound, but she's got to find that one coin. And, and, and Jesus is, is telling these parables. And what is it? What is the purpose of those parables? Is that this is the heart of God and this is how he pursues us? He doesn't have to. He's holy. He's just. We're sinners. Why would he go to the effort? Why does he go to, to uh, does he put himself out like that? And Jesus, the son of God, is telling this. This is the heart of my heavenly father. Yes, he's just. Yes, he, he will bring judgment. Yes, he is holy. There, there's no conflict there. And then, you know, I just uh, probably in the last year or so, I went back and started reading the, 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 the story of the prodigal son, or I like to call it the loving father. You, you know the story in Luke chapter 15, right? Well-known passage. And I preached on it. I've taught on it before, but I just decided to go back about a year ago and just read it just more as devotion and just to glean from it. And you know what? I started looking at it from a different perspective. And, you know, it really is unbelievably extraordinary. You know the story. And, by the way, why does it have uh, authority? Why does it have credibility? Because Jesus was the one that told it. And think about what Jesus told about that. You had a man that had two sons. One of the sons apparently is a little bit uh, disappointed that his dad looks like he's going to stick around for a while. And so he wants to go up there and he says, hey, listen, will you give me my half of the inheritance? Will you give it to me? I want to head on out. I want to live my life. I want to be in control. I don't want the constraints and the restraints of this uh, household. So let me go. Give me my money. Now think about that. Think about that in a modern context. Say, my, my friend Jim calls me up one day. Hey, Scott, listen, hey, uh, I'd like to go to lunch with you one day and got some things I'd kind of like to talk over with you if that's okay. Yeah, sure, Jim, let's go. And so we meet for lunch. We sit down, and Jim goes, I said, well, hey, you know, we had the small talk. And I said, well, what's up, Jim? He goes, well, you know, I tell you what, I've been having some problems with problems with Jeremy. And uh, just the other day, Jeremy comes up to me and he says, uh, hey, listen, dad, uh, I want my uh, share of the inheritance now. And I, you know, I want to, I want to move out of state and I got some things I want to do, want to see the world. And so if you could just kind of give me my share of the inheritance now, uh, you know, I'll be on my way. And 
Jim says, so I, I've been meeting with my accountant and my financial advisors trying to figure out what, uh, what funds I can liquidate and all. I think most of us would go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not seriously thinking about doing that, are you? Are you crazy? I mean, all of us would give wise counsel like, Jim, that is not what you're to do. That's crazy. He's crazy for asking it. You're not going to do that. That's a modern-day context. Imagine if the loving father had talked to one of his friends and said, yeah, well, I'm liquidating some of the stuff. And, and yet Jesus told this story illustrating the love of God and his attitude towards us. So, yes, we do have that, that concept of the just God and the God that disciplines but this extraordinary other side of God, not to be taken lightly and not to treat flippantly. Oh, yeah, I'm saved, you know, so I can go out and live however I want to. If that's the attitude you have, I don't think you're saved. But that's the other side of this incredible God and his kindness. And where he goes to extremes that we would advise against. In order to love the unlovable, the ungrateful, the evil. I mean, I think anyone was to say to a, a child, a son or a daughter that would ever say that, that to their parent, how could you be so evil to have that attitude towards your mom or your dad? That's what we see with the kindness of God in, in, in this passage in Luke. Well, let's talk about the strength of God, and we'll move through these quickly. The strength of God, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 20, and you're familiar with this passage. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Hint, hint. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Well, he's already broken the first one because he must think he's on par with God. All these I've kept since my youth. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So come follow me. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is impossible with God. Was the real issue the man's wealth? No. The real issue is where did he put his trust? 
Who, where did he put his faith and his trust? In himself, in his ability to be able to keep the law, in his ability to be good enough, in his ability that, hey, you know what, I've got a lot of resources, so if I come up into some difficult situation, I'm sure I'm going to have enough in resources to be able to bail myself out. So that's where his confidence is. That's where his trust was. And Jesus went to the heart issue and pointed it out to him. And unfortunately, this young man walked away sad because he didn't want to give up that. He did not want to exchange or move the trust from himself to God. But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, we can't muster up the ability or the strength or the desire to completely trust God without first coming to God and saying, help me, I need you. That's where it begins. But we know that God will not give you more than you can handle, right? That's what the scripture says, right? No, it does not say that. In fact, many times God will give you more than you can handle intentionally to bring you to the end of yourself so that that you will turn to him and say, God, I can't, but you can. God, I can't, but you can when we talk about this or we say things like this, we're thinking about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice the key words here. Tempted. When you are tempted, we know what happened with Jesus in the temptation. It was God that came and ministered him. It was God's word that he, he trusted in to be able to say to Satan. He didn't trust even God in the flesh. He did not trust in his own strength to be able to combat, to do warfare, to combat Satan. And that is a word to us. It's not in our ability. It's not in our strength. It's not in our intelligence. It's not in our resources. It is God. And here he's talking about when you're tempted. Now, we know when we talk about temptation, you fill in the blank, whatever that temptation is, whether it's eating or whether it's gambling or whether it's uh, lust or sex or whatever it might be, you fill in the blank. And you know that in every one of those situations, you don't just stumble into those situations. There's dozens and dozens of decisions that are made leading up to the point of temptation. And what he's saying here in the scriptures, he says, they will not leave you beyond your ability, and he will provide a way of escape. You're in the midst of a temptation, and you want to follow through with it. And on you're just about to engage, and ring, oh, hello, how you? Oh, hey, how you doing, Jim? Yeah, I can't talk right now. Goodbye, you know. There was one of your ways of escape right there. God will bring about the situations for you to move past that temptation. But again, he's talking about temptation. But what about the power and where our own sufficiency, the apostle Paul again says in second Corinthians 12, nine, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul actually says that God's power is is, is made perfect in our weakness. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Put no confidence in the flesh. 
That's what he's talking about, the strength of God and the, the, the strength that he provides for us as we walk in him. Now, again, you see where we're going with all of this, right? We see these characters in God and the, what God provides, but there's a purpose in it, right? Remember in the first verses, and to be like your father. This is how we should live as well in our reliance on the Father. Jesus modeled it perfectly when he rested on uh, the Father. Now, I'm going to be, this is completely commentary. This is Scott Riling. This is just my fertile mind. Sometimes it goes around it. But I've also wondered, maybe I've shared this before, is I've often wondered, what was that thorn in the flesh? What was that? Because that's what Paul was referring to. What was that thorn in the flesh, that messenger of Satan that, that Paul talked about? And a lot of people have different views. Some scholars believe that maybe his eyesight was bad because in some of his letters he says, I write to you in big letters. Maybe his eyesight wasn't very good. Uh, or maybe, you know, the number of times that he says that he was imprisoned and shipwrecked and beaten and, and, and starved and everything else, that maybe, you know, at this point in his life, that's just getting up in the morning, it's like, you know, snap, crackle, and pop. You know, he's just like, ah, oh, and he's just hurting all over, whatever. He's got arthritis, whatever it might have been. You know, it could have been that, and it and very well could have been that. It could have been a, a lot of different things. Whether this was what he was referring to or not, but I can tell you, I can almost guarantee you one of the things I know that Paul had to have dealt with was remembering what he had done before. Before he was saved, before he was changed, before he had his encounter with Jesus Christ, he was a zealot, thinking he was serving God, going around with official papers in hand to persecute the church, persecute Christians, believers. He would carry men and women off to prison. He even said of himself, and some of them were beaten, and some of them died. They were imprisoned, and some of them died. And he said what? And I gave hearty approval to it. Remember when he was the one that held the cloaks, you know, for whenever Stephen uh, was was stoned. So, you know, uh, uh, Paul saw this horrible treatment, and he was he was all about it. But then he got saved. And he becomes the greatest missionary the world's ever known. He's written over half of the New Testament. He understands the grace of God. He wrote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It's a free gift of God, not as a result of works lest any man should boast. He wrote that. He understood grace. He was the one that said, I'm the least of the apostles. And he was basically saying, I, I, I am... I deserve it the least what God has given to me. I am the one who deserves God's grace and mercy the least of anyone on the planet. That's what Paul's attitude was. He said, but by God's grace, I am saved. By God's grace, I am a new person. But I guarantee you he was a human being. And he also wrote in Romans chapter 12, to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, what? By the renewing of your mind. So Paul said, listen, this is where the battle is. What do you think it was like for the Apostle Paul to sometime at the end of a long day to lay his head down on the pillow and those old videotapes would start playing of those families that he completely devastated, decimated. And when you're carrying men and women, mommy and daddy off to prison, who's left in the wake? The children. Think about the countless families that he destroyed, and he could never go back and fix it. Now, whether or not that was what he was talking about there, I guarantee you 
that had to have crossed his mind because he was a human being. And he acknowledges his grace and his weakness. But he says what? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, the strength of God, because our, the power is made perfect in him. And then finally, so we've talked about the kindness of God, the strength of God. God is not just the God of the gaps. In other words, God is not wanting you to live your life saying, you know what, God, I've got this. I've got this. I can handle this. If I do need you, I'll call you. If I come up on something I just don't know what to do or can't handle, I'll be sure to let you know about it. But right now, I can handle this. There is nothing in life that we should have that attitude about. I don't care how skilled you are or how well you can do a job or how much you know or anything. There is nothing in life, whether it's loving our family, whether it's doing our job, whether it is just living life in general, there is nothing in our lives that we should ever have the attitude of, I've got this, Lord. I tell you what, we'll be partners. I'll handle 40% of it, and then you can handle the other 60%. No, we should recognize our need for God's wisdom and strength and his, and, and his power in everything we do, everything. Even the things that we may be inclined to take for granted. Oh, well, I, I can do that. I know this stuff like the back of my hand. Who gave you the knowledge to know that? Him. And we've all seen instances where that knowledge can be fleeting. That understanding, that ability, that that ability to operate, we've seen it over and over again. Nothing's more tragic than seeing someone who's battling Alzheimer's. And you say, wow, this person, wow, what they were able to do at one time, and now they're just a shell of that person. Every second, every moment, we rely on the strength of God. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can only do about 40% of what you were planning on doing, right? No, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what about when, hey, well, how I lived my life before I became a Christian, before I became a believer, you know. You know what that is? That goes back to our original beginning. That was God being grateful and merciful to the unkind and the evil. Before we met Christ, we say, well, listen, you didn't do that on your own. That was God reigning on the just as well as the unjust, even in that case, because it all comes from him. Jesus said, don't rely on anything, certainly not your own strength, but only the strength of God. Whoever abides in me and I in him, and you can do nothing apart from me. Once again, Paul said, Philippians 4.13, we all know it. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him that gives me strength. And by the way, was Paul a pretty impressive guy, even when he got saved, especially when he got saved? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's the guy when he was beaten and left for dead outside the city of Lystra, and then he just kind of sit there and tumbled up with a bunch of stones, and all of a sudden he comes back, comes to, and 
gets his bearings and starts getting out from under the rocks. And what does the dude do? He goes right back into the city. Me, what would I be doing? Man, I would be wearing sandals on that day because I'd be shaking the dust from my sandals. I'm going the other direction. You had your chance. I'm done with you. You know, not Paul. Incredible, incredible strength. And yet he's saying, but it's not my strength. It's all the strength of God. Finally, the loyalty of God. This is very, very short. The loyalty of God. Jesus had an encounter with Peter. You know, Peter... You know, he, he often struggled with foot and mouth disease. And so he would often say things that, you know, later on he would end up regretting. You know, Peter was the one that said, Hello, well, no matter what these others do, I will go to prison with you. I will die for you. And if you remember that whenever Jesus appeared to him then again after the resurrection, he said, hey, by the way, where, where are the other friends? You know, do you love me more than them, Peter? Because I kind of remember not too long ago you said that you... Where were you at the cross, by the way? Where were you when I was being carried off to prison? And In fact, didn't you deny me three times? But he was talking to Peter, and he's telling him, and he's warning him ahead of time. He knows what he's going to do in Peter. He loved Peter. He used Peter in an extraordinary way. Again, did God know, did Jesus know what Peter was going to do? You betcha he did. Where most of us, if we were to have an idea of what was to come and how someone might fail us, we might say, well, I'm never going to trust you in the first place. But look what, Peter, what Jesus did. He said to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says this, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Wow, that's extraordinary. The loyalty of God. Listen, Peter. In other words, in modern vernacular, when the pressure's on, you're going to give in and you're going to fail and you're going to fall miserably on your face and you're going to even deny me three times. And you're going to feel awful. You're going to feel terrible. And you'll go through a period of mourning and you'll probably want to be able to give up and all. But when you've done all of that, when you finally, as like with the prodigal son, when you come back to your senses and you turn back to me again, strengthen your brothers. That would be like us saying to someone, okay, listen, I'm going to put my trust in you. Now, I know you're going to betray me. You're going to stab me in the back, and you're going to go away. And then when you do, when you give in, because you just weren't strong enough to stay on your own, whenever you give in, and when you do that, you're going to feel awful. You're going to feel awful. And you're going to feel sorry, and you're going to be depressed, and you're, you're going to realize the mistake you made. And when you finally say, you know what, I should have never done that, I'm going to go ask for forgiveness. When you do that, I want you to strengthen the other folks that you're going to come in contact with that also might be tempted to go the same path as you did. The loyalty. Jesus knew what Peter was going to do, and yet he was loyal to Peter, even warning him, ahead of time. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Can you, that, does that not just blow your mind? That Hebrews gives us insight that Jesus Christ, the mediator, is constantly going on our behalf before the Father? 
He is our defense attorney, constantly pleading our case. I'm sure that sometimes it's like, okay, Father, I listen, Scott, uh, I need to talk to you about Scott again. You know, I know I've been here so often. All I'm sure that sometimes it's almost like he goes constantly makes intercession with the Father on our behalf. The loyalty, the loyalty of Christ. And he saves to the uttermost. We go back to what, when we're looking at what also applied to the kindness of God. But what is this, all the purpose of this? But love your enemies. Can you do that in your own power? No. And do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Can you do that in your own power? No. The assumption is the negative. No. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind and ungrateful to the evil. And what Jesus is saying, and I want you to be like your heavenly father. Because he says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Jesus is saying, this is how I want you to live. Does this mean that you never hold people accountable for what they do? No, it does not mean that. It is a matter of the heart. Is your heart judgmental? Is it harsh? Is it untrusting? Is it is skeptical? Is, it, is this the heart that you struggle with that you live with each day? Or do we have a heart like God who, yes, there is that balance of judgment and justice, but there's also this incredible mercy. There's this incredible kindness. There's this strengthening, this coming alongside, and there's incredible loyalty on God's part, even to you and to me. So as we leave here and as we go through this week, what is the lesson for us to take away from us? Just as our heavenly father is kind, we too should be kind. Just as our heavenly father, as just as we are strengthened by our heavenly father and he provides the strength that you and I must walk not in our own strength, but walk only in the strength and the strength and the wisdom of God our Father, as Jesus said, and as Jesus perfectly modeled. Remember, whenever he was in the garden, sweating drops of blood, and he said to the Father, "Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me." But instantaneously said, "But not my will, but yours be done." You see the submission submission of the Son of God. To his father. That is the pattern. That is the model for you and for me. That we experience the kindness of God and we live in the kindness of God. That we live and experience the strength of God. We live in the strength of God. And then finally, and that we are loyal. That our hearts are loyal. We don't turn away at the least disappointment. We don't turn away when somebody just fails to measure up. But we are people who are loyal, and we live in that loyalty. Why? Because we're living as our heavenly Father is, and we, we, uh, we live that out. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. Oh, Lord, we just thank you for your kindness that you show towards us every single day, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would live lives that are uh, subservient to you, Lord, that we would model, that we would live as Jesus modeled. We recognize that our strength is not in ourselves. We, have, we, are not strength, we are not strong enough. We're not wise enough. Lord, we are totally dependent on you 
that, Lord, if we cut ourselves off from you, then not, it's not just that we can do some things. We can't do anything, especially of spiritual value. But, Lord, we've experienced your kindness, and we are grateful and thankful. Lord, thank you for the strengthening that you provide for us when we are weak and we, we so desperately need you. And, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for your loyalty towards us. And that, Lord, even when we failed you time and time again, you never fail us. You never turn your back. You discipline, but you love. We praise you and thank you, and we love you, Jesus. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.